Yes, it's the Sustainable Futures Report. I'm Anthony Day, and it's Friday the 15th of May. Welcome. This week's theme is fusion, clean energy from nuclear fusion. I spoke to Michael Binderbauer, CEO of TAE Technologies, about the particular angle of research that his organisation is following. I call this episode Solar Cells on Steroids. You'll see why. My guest today is Michael Binderbauer, who is Chief Executive of TAE Technologies, formerly their Chief Technical Development Officer. Michael, the reason I wanted to talk to you is that I think you and I have objectives in common, and I think they're shared by the people who listen to the Sustainable Futures Report. We're all looking for clean energy. And um, the particular search that you're following is... um, fusion energy. Now, before we get into the technicalities, uh, can you just tell me a little bit about your organisation and then we can uh, look at uh, the differences between what you're doing and what other people are trying to do? Sure, more than happy to do. Well, so TAE Technology is a company that uh, was really funded with exactly what your introduction said, with sort of the intent to really make a difference, um, in particular to um, carbon emissions when it comes to you know energy generation and the impact that has uh, globally on climate change. We started as a as a company in about 1998, uh, and that frankly is predated by almost a decade of work um, that I was privileged to do with one of the most amazing guys in the field of fusion physics and plasma physics in general uh, at the University of California, Norman Rostocker. Uh, And Norman and I began working on a very um, different idea uh, towards fusion with the intent to actually meet exactly this objective of clean. And clean here is not just towards the idea of no carbon pollution, but inclusive of no radioactivity, uh, no other harmful emissions or byproducts of any kind, no no long-lived waste stream, things like that. And um, that gets you off uh, very quickly to a very different direction than where Fusion Today is trending. And so the company's mission over the last 20 years has been to take that vision off the paper, if you will, and you know turn it into a functional reality. And um, it's a journey of you know endurance, if you will, through lots of um, challenges that frankly were less physicists, they were uh, in the areas of technology, support technologies. And we can get into what that all is. It's a, it's a sobering learning curve of what you need to do that Okay. And the company has amassed an incredible group of folks to help make that happen. And so today we're here with about 200 people doing that. Right, okay. So we're talking about nuclear power, but of course, uh, traditional nuclear power, which has been established for over 60 years now, is uh, nuclear fission. And you're talking That's about right. nuclear fusion. Now, yeah. the thing about fusion, uh, leaving aside the, the um, dead ends like cold fusion, fusion has been as you say on your website, ready in 20 years for the last 50 years. Um, this is the problem. Scientists That's can right. see it should work, but there are lots of people across the world working on it, and they can't yet actually make it work to the extent that you get more energy out than you put in. So where are you leading us? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, you know, I, I always like to say it's 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 nature's preferred source of energy. I mean, it works, right? Yeah. You just have to look up at the sun every day. 
Uh, the difference, of course, terrestrially is, is we don't have the massive amount of gravity that the sun takes advantage of to, to hold the stuff together. So we have to resort to other things here. That's been extremely challenging. Now, you alluded to the, you know, the, the sort of, and it depends who you talk to. It's 20 years forever or it's 30 years away forever or 50 years. Um, but the, the reality is, is that, you know, it is extremely challenging, but um, we have made dramatic progress in the lots of technologies that are, I think are going to be very critical or that we now know are critical to make this happen. Okay. And uh, um, that's a big driver. That's a big difference from where things were, you know, even 10 years ago. And, and, and I think it's that more than anything that one of us here, and when I say one of us, I mean the whole um, collegium of people working in fusion, public and private, uh, is getting very close this, this time. And it's real. Right. Okay. Now, I'm no scientist. I know scientists do listen to the podcast, but I know a lot of people are like me and they're not scientists. So let me ask you a dumb question, first of all. Um, nuclear fission, conventional um, nuclear power stations create heat to boil water, to raise steam, to drive turbines, to turn a generator to make electricity. Is yeah. the objective of fusion to create heat or is it a completely different way of actually producing electricity? So this is a good question. So this depends. So the mainstream, and in, I would say also us in, for, in generation one, is exactly like that. That is, it's just a different heat source, right? Uh -huh. um, instead of um, boiling, um, you know, instead of cooking coals or, or, or gas or something, or in the case of nuclear fission, splitting atoms, uh, here we're fusing atoms and that generates heat and that heat can be used to, to drive a, a thermal back end of a plant, as we call it, which is what you described, the heat exchangers, the turbines and so on. Um, in the case of fusion, uh, there is an option in the kind of fusion that we're working on to get beyond that. In conventional fusion, it'll still go through a heat intermediary heat process. Um, and we will start there as well uh, for various reasons. We can get into why that makes sense as a first you know, adoption. But it ultimately, and ultimately maybe with a delay from first plant of fusion that we think of, you know, maybe a decade after, we would move to something that could directly convert, which would mean that you would have something that looks more like a solar cell on steroid, steroids surrounding the fusion core, and then you could directly extract um, energetic light coming from the fusion. That's, in fact, how the energy emits initially, in our case. And then you could um, drive that through this direct exchange process, and so it would, it would eventually get rid of all the turbo machinery and the moving parts. That's really interesting because, of course, the turbines and the magnetos are 19th century engineering, aren't they? And here we are in the 21st century. Yeah, I have a good friend who is uh, a highly respected guy in, in, in fusion and in other areas. And he always says, this is James Watts' technology. It's your backyard, right? I mean, you guys came up with this, um, what, in the 18th century. Um, and we still are more or less stuck on that in a way. I mean, it's gotten obviously a lot more sophisticated and the efficiencies are good and so on. But um, yes, this would be an attempt ultimately by us to step well beyond that. Not, as I said, generation one, but, but generation two. Okay. Right. You are researching into fusion and so are people across the world. There is a major European initiative uh, in France, uh, the ITER, but I understand yep. that you're using different technology from the, the technology that they're working on. Now, again, be gentle with me. Bear in mind, I'm not a scientist. Tell me the difference between what you're doing and what they're doing and why you're following the route that you are. 
Yeah, good question. So this is a this is a simple question with um, I'm afraid or could become a very expensive <laughs> answer. I'm, I'm going to try to stay away from that as best as possible. But if you look at it, so the, the, the first aspect to understand is that terrestrially there's a limitation of what kind of fuels we can work with. And that, that, that's that's different than what happens in the stars. As I said earlier, the stars have all this gravitational advantage, right, that they can pull, they can create pressures in the center and you can get to very high densities and packing ratios of particles and then you don't need very high temperatures and you can actually cook a lot of different atomic reactions. Now, terrestrially, we can't quite do that. Um, if I first step back and say, what is the problem? The problem is basically you, you've, you've got to get to very high temperatures before these atoms want to collide violently enough that you can get any fusion. So that's one aspect. And then, of course, the rate at which you can have these reactions occur has relatively low probability. So you need to try to put as many particles together as close as possible. You got to keep them hot and then you got to keep them there long enough that there's a high chance that a lot of these will actually fuse and produce energy. So that's your problem. Uh, and if I repackage that in a kitchen model, I would give you an example, like think of a ball of very oozy jello held together with a bunch of rubber bands. It's sort of a good analogy of what we're trying to do. And what most, in fact, you, 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 know, you refer to either the same thing. These are all magnetic fusion ideas. So what happens here is basically we use some form of magnetic field structure to, to compress and hold together this oozy ball of jello, if you will, instead of gravity like the sun does. And it turns out that terrestrially, with the technology constraints with, with magnets and so on, we can only bring up so much pressure, if you will, to hold things. And this puts you then into a constraint set that says there's only certain things you can do. And so if you look at the bookshelf of potential fusion reactions, it settles very clearly on terrestrially to a handful of things we can do. And it's interesting, though, because there is a spectrum of opportunity and derivative of that various interesting consequences. So the world at large, meaning pretty much everybody but TAE technologies, is pursuing um, a, a cycle called deuterium-tritium. Now, what is that? Those are just two forms of hydrogen. And then they, you bang them together, and then you get out of that um, helium. And you also get, uh, and this is the concerning point, you get a neutron. And if you know a little bit about nuclear, if read about fission, for instance, then you'll know that that's the same thing there. You get neutrons, and these neutrons propagate in the case of fission, the fission process. Here, they're much more energetic neutrons, and what that does is it just um, causes damage um, to materials. It basically, it's like billiard balls hitting a surface, and they, you know, so if you have a metal, for instance, which has, let's say, a very nice orientation of, of atoms, the billiard ball hitting, hitting these atomic sites, they're kicking them out, and over time, with enough bombardment, the integrity of the metal fails, and then you have to you know, replace these parts. And so in the power plant, in the fusion power plant, the typical conventional ideas that people are pursuing, there's a severe limitation based on material you know, strength and survivability uh, that, that is a, a big concern. It's a cost impact, the practicality impact, et cetera. Um, so that's that's one aspect, but that's the fuel cycle that everybody pursues. And why are people pursuing that? Because it's the quote unquote easiest to cook. Uh, and to put that in perspective, um, that will probably raise the hair of a few people that are listening in. You need about 100 million degrees to cook this fuel. Okay, so put in perspective, the, the sun of the, the the core of the sun is about 15 million degrees. So this material will have to get to about 100 million degrees held together by this 
a collection of rubber bands, if you will, right? Which magnetic fields you can think of sort of like rubber bands. Um, and then it's, it's, it's held together there and it cooks at 100 million degrees. Uh, and that's the easiest um, opportunity humanity has to do this. Um, what we're pursuing is much higher temperatures, about a billion degrees. Wow. And so you're, you know, you're, you're stepping up a factor of 10, roughly speaking. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's, that's considerably more difficult. Uh, but why would you want to do that? Well, first of all, our fuel cycle is called hydrogen boron. Um, so that uses, again, hydrogen as one constituent. The other one is boron, which is a very light element, element five in the periodic table, right? So it's very diverse across the crust in terms of its deposits. You have it also in seawater, in the oceans. There's about 100,000 years of fuel around. And what's most important is when you cook it, you get purely helium out three helium atoms per reaction. So hydrogen and boron comes together and out come three alpha particles, we call them the nuclear physics jargon, but those are helium atoms. And those, as you may know uh, from your chemistry classes way back, right, they are called noble gases. So they don't interact with things. In fact, they're totally inert chemically um, to environmental impact or anything. And so it's a wonderful nirvana situation. You get, you get energy and you get helium of which, mind you, is scarce on the planet, and there's lots of industrial uses, uh, and it has no impact. There's no there, there's no carbon emission. There's there's no radioactivity to speak of. Its handicap is is the, is the billion degree mark, right? Yeah. Um, and so yeah. we're the only ones pursuing that, and that sets us apart. And why are we doing that? We're doing that because for those problems I described. And in fact, um, to put another um, dent on the, uh, the this hydrogen cycle that the world is pursuing at large. The other handicap beyond materials issues is the one of um, availability of one of these two um, hydrogen forms, tritium, uh, which is uh, a radioactive in and of itself. So it doesn't actually exist in nature. You're going to have to breed it. Mm. Um, if it, if it, for instance, leaks into the groundwater, uh, which we occasionally have in fission plants, there's a little tritium or tritiated water developed um, in the cooling loops. If you have a leak like that, uh, that can be then absorbed into the groundwater, can eventually come into our drinking supply, we ingest it, and it's bioavailable just like regular, you know, H2O. And so you mm. would drink this mm. and you'd have this um, radioactive stuff in your body. Not a good um, idea, right? And so again, uh, there's a lot of negative elements around it. It's great attractor though, is, um, given how hard the problem of holding all this together is, if you can do it at lower temperature, perhaps that's, you know, very attractive. And that's, in fact, is what it is. Scientists always look for the easiest next step, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so that's part of the universe to, of these things. Have you been able to achieve a billion degrees? <laughs> no, the answer is not yet. Okay. <laughs> and um, now the question is, how do you even do that? And what, what does it actually mean, a billion degrees? And I think we mm. maybe want to stop for a moment and explore that because right. i think it's going to be interesting for yeah. people because it sounds totally utopian right mm. i mean frankly a million degrees sounds utopian yeah you know you you think as a as an as, a, as an average layperson you hear temperatures like that you will think everything will melt well the reality is um it won't for reasons that and this is again peculiar diffusion um the the, the amount of particles that you're making super hot there um are very few in fact, um, one thing I didn't mention yet is that, you know, this process, this sort of holding together of this jello, that happens inside of a vacuum system. So the particles that we're heating up and trying to manipulate and fuse, they're sitting inside of a big vacuum chamber. And, and the density in that chamber 
it's about um, you know six to seven orders of magnitude less than the density of the air in the atmospheric conditions we live in. So in other words, um, it's a very rarefied in situation. It's sort of like going into outer space, and then you know you, you you've got virtually nothing inside of this vacuum tank, and then you're putting a handful of particles in, and then you heat those up. So what's the what's the 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 you know the upside of that, or what's the consequence? The consequence is even though you have some particles that are insanely hot, there's so few of them in there that the total energy or heat stored in that bath is actually very tiny. And so one of the thing, one of the beautiful aspects of this is that yes, while these temperatures are insanely hot, um, you know, you can actually work with them. So for instance, in the machine we currently have, which is our fifth generation device, we call it Norman. Um, it's think of it something that's a behemoth about two double decker buses um, back to back. Yeah. So it's about you know 100 feet roughly in length, and it's got you know all this about 60,000 square feet of, of circumferential support equipment and so on. Um, and in that machine now, we're making um, uh, plasmas that reach up into the 30, sometimes up to almost 50 million degree mark. Okay, and yet nothing melts. And the, the reason it doesn't is because there are very few particles in there that get that hot, and when they contact the, the metallic surface they actually will cool down instantaneously. There's so much more capacity in the, in the surrounding stuff to absorb that tiny amount of energy that it instantaneously cools out this plasma inside. And so in a way you can think of the problem, one of having to protect uh, the interior from the surroundings. It's, it's not the opposite, right? Okay. And so okay. it's not okay. the same as when you think of your hand touching, you know, a, a million degree stove plate, that, that'd be a very different yeah. problem. Yeah. First, yeah. Yeah. But look, you're, 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 you're bombarding these, these particles. You, you want these particles to fuse. When they fuse, they give up heat. The heat is what you want. Um, now, you've got these particles in this vacuum environment. How do you actually get out the heat that you're trying to uh, obtain uh, so that you can actually make yeah, use so, of it? Mm -hmm. Very good question. So what happens is, uh, and, and this is true for, um, for, for most of the ideas in fusion, right, that um, the, the, the material will fuse. Uh, Einstein's famous formula describes the energy gain there, right? Equals mc squared. So you, you, you're trading the uh, primary constituents that go into the reaction for the, the, the daughter generation that comes out. And that daughter generation has a tiny amount less mass. And that mass converts to energy. And most of the energy um, infusion initially comes out in the form of two, in two forms. It's either energetic light. Um, or it's energetic particles of some form. So in this conventional type that I was describing earlier, most of it comes out in the form of um, energetic particles, which are in this case neutrons. And these are those little billiard balls I was talking about that will bombard the surface. And then when they hit the surface, that um, what we call in physics kinetic energy, so this is the energy of the motion, it will convert into thermal energy in the surface, right? So the, the, the billiard balls go in, uh, they slow down through collisions with the metal, and then they, they stop somewhere in there. And then as they slow down more and more, more, more and more of that energy transmits into the metal and heats the metal up. And then you have to cool that metal, otherwise it will melt. And the way you would do that is you pump some coolant through it, right? And this is then very similar to what you would do in the surroundings of a fission reactor core or, or any of these other technologies. You'll have a working fluid, could be as simple as pressurized water, or something more sophisticated as they use today, these um, you know gases uh, that can transfer heat more efficiently, and then it runs through the turbine and so on. Okay. Now, in our case, uh, with hydrogen boron, 
the initial energy um, emerges mostly also in the form of charged particles, but in the form, I mean, in the form of particles, in moving particles, but it's these helium atoms. And these helium atoms will, um, will in fact transmit most of that energy in the, in, within the plasma. And then what you ultimately get is you get very hot soup of these, uh, of these plasma particles, and that emits energetic light. That energetic light now hits the surface, and it's that light, just like sunlight when you go out and you feel the warmth, right? This is a higher energy light, but it's the same process in the end. It will hit that surface again, and then you will have to either, you know, as in conventional, and in the idea of the conventional process of generation one that I described in our first generation, we'll use again a working fluid to transmit that out. And in generation two, we're thinking of intercepting that energetic light with what I call solar cells on steroids, which mm. is, you know, something that's it, 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 it's adjusted to the energy of the light that comes off the core and then converts that into um, direct current electricity. That will be a very significant advance, won't it? Yeah, once you have it, of course, you can see it, it reduces complexity. It takes out a lot of moving parts. Uh, if you're in a power plant, you know, you worry about the maintenance of all these things. The power is supposed to come out steadily all the time, right, reliably. So you take out some of those things. Uh, that's the right direction to go in addition to the economic advantages it brings. But this this will obviously take a little time. And we see two reasons for um, not pursuing it up front. One is, you know, the, it loads more technological development risk and having to do all this the solar cell stuff and these other things right up front. It's sort of more easy, but perhaps more primitive. You're bombarding a surface with the heat flow in the end, right? And then you're sucking that heat out through cooling it. Um, and, 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 that's, and, and the other aspect is that utilities and people in the power business today understand that way of transferring the, the energy generated in the, in the core into you know, electricity very well. And in fact, whether you would have a fusion power plant or a fission plant or a coal plant, what have you there is a part to it where there's comfort now because that technology is as you said earlier you know it's like 100 years old we know how to do that yeah so as from adoption perspective you're not in, instead of changing everything in step one you're making the incremental change right you're exchanging the heat source and then eventually you exchange more and that's i think from an adoption perspective also the, the more sort of rational and um, you know conservative approach that makes sense okay okay well, um, are you prepared to commit to uh, an estimate? Are you think? Do you think that we are actually in the final twenty years, or even the final ten years, before success is achieved? Um, as I said, you, you are doing things very differently from other researchers. Do you think that that is going to lead you to a result um, sooner? This is a great question. And, you know, first of all, from a timeline perspective, I think you framed it extremely well. I think 10 years is sort of what I think is, if everything goes extremely well, then 10 years is about the marker. We hope to be with the first sort of, um, the first energy production capability, generation capability, net energy, um, in, in the, you know, going into the utility grids in the early 30s. So you're talking about 10 years. Um, you know, obviously there's, there's lots of, elements to that one is the, the science risk itself which we, we feel very comfortable now that we have a, a very good path to do this i mean as i said we've been 20 years developing obviously science but also technology to support that and today we we're at the maturity stage where i think um i mean there's no longer the naive naivete of you know of not understanding the fulsomeness of the mountain you have to climb 
it, it's, you know, it's this classic thing. You start climbing, you don't know you're in the fog. The fog clears and you suddenly see the summit is way higher up than you had anticipated. That's no longer the case. We do understand what's left to be done. And, and we think this is traversable with enough capital in about 10 years. And, and then, of course, you have, um, in terms of bringing that technology then from the lab to the market, yeah. you obviously have other other things, right? You've got supply chain. I mean, yeah. let's say now this really works and everybody wants it, right? It couldn't from one day to the next uh, take over. It wouldn't. It will, it will incrementally gain market share over many decades. And so that, that's one. Um, you have uh, the adversity of a very conservative industry, frankly, for good reason, right? I mean, we all, when we flip a switch, we expect the light to come on all the time. And they know that, and they have to therefore be very careful in adopting things that are yet unproven in terms of, even if they work for a while, mm. but reliability is a big deal. Yeah. So I think those are the kind of handicaps, you know, so it'll take a while. Having said that, um, I am very convinced, very bullish, that um, in the next 10 years, and certainly within the next 20 years, you will see uh, the, the, the first plants running. There's absolutely no doubt in whether that's us, and I hope it's us, and I believe it's us, or, or one of the other, um, I wouldn't call them competitors, for, but you know, like-minded um, uh, people pushing on this, yeah. it's going to happen. Okay. Of course, the big question then is going to be, Will it be commercially viable? I mean, we see solar power and we see wind power and we see the prices going down and down and down. Um, yeah. Conventional nuclear, nuclear fission, is getting incredibly expensive. Um, yeah. And you really probably can't know at this stage what the cost of actually commercializing fusion when you get it going. Um, well, actually, you know, I would disagree a little bit with this. I mean, first of all, let, let me, let me, well, let me, let's address first the last part, and then we'll go back to the competition in terms of, you know, who are the other uh, energy sources outside of fusion that, that are in the mix. If we start first with sort of a notion on cost, it's actually, even though we don't have a, we don't have obviously a working plant today, what we do have is we've built um, beyond the fifth generation, you know, fully integrated machine, we've built prototypes of some of the critical and perhaps I should say definitively most expensive parts of, of, of the concept, um, which in our case are you know accelerator based uh, fuel injectors, and and again the magnets, the superconducting magnet system that you need, and so those two alone, um, very quickly you can get uh, even with rough estimates to conclude is about sixty percent of a plant's cost. It's almost two thirds. Okay, so you you can so if you can nail down what the cost of those things is, then you you are in a pretty good spot because the rest of it is. It's more conventional stuff. I mean, you got to pour, you know, concrete pad, and you got rebar, and you know, this kinds of things. Um, and so we actually, um, despite this sort of still capable to, to build one yet, we can actually estimate pretty well what it will cost. I mean, it's obviously with some, with some, you know, range. Um, but I can tell you that um, based on on our well, what I would call as sophisticated as it makes sense today, um, estimating that we've been doing consistently for about fifteen years now refining it as we learn more, um, we, we, we see that this can be competitive. And what I mean by competitive, without getting into, you know, nailed down on any particular exact number, um, it, it will be, uh, it'll be quite a bit cheaper than fission. Um, it's going to be more um, than, you know, I think, for instance, you know, living in the US here, we always have as our lowest benchmark is natural gas, right? Uh, Europe, of course, that's quite different, for instance, first of all, the geopolitical issue with gas coming from, from Russia, 
but the price of gas is higher. You know, Australia price of gas, for instance, is higher too. So it depends regionally. But we look at that. We're somewhere between the low end, which for us is defined as gas, or now perhaps some of the renewables trending down. Um, and then on the other end, you have, of course, as you said, rightfully, fishing being extremely expensive. Um, we think we're going to be a lot cheaper. Um, we, we have to basically amortize the cost of, of deploying this uh, facility. The, the, the maintenance aspects are not very different than conventional plants. Nowhere near fission. There is no radioactive waste to contend with and so forth. Um, you therefore don't have the safety overhead and cost that comes with that. Mm. Um, you also um, don't have some of the environmental impact, right? So if you're looking um, fast forward a little bit, the world is trending into, um, I think, um, an emergence of carbon taxes, for instance. And I wouldn't even say we have to rely on those. What I described to you now is, is, a, is an economic picture that can actually exist without the carbon taxes and be successful. But when you put carbon taxes on top of it, then these plants become extremely attractive. And, and I believe that likely will be part of our future, whether we like it or not. Um, and then the other aspect to your question is the one. So this is sort of the economics. I think we're, we're in the ballpark. You know, we're not the cheapest. We're far from being the most expensive. We're somewhere in the middle. And now you have to overlay to that, of course, the, the capability. It's, it's uh, as I said, it's, it's carbon, no carbon output. It doesn't cause long-lived radioactivity. There's no waste stream. I mean, the waste stream you want to harvest, which is the helium particles, uh, you have no su supply constraint on the fuel. There's 100,000 years roughly of boron available. And, of course, hydrogen a lot more. And, and those are, um, uh, you know, at price points where it's a commodity product, where it's boron use in, uh, you know, in circuit ports and detergents. Um, it, it's a, it's an, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a com commodity product, industrial scale, mined by the metric ton. So there's no impact on, on any of those things. So that's why we think it's, it's going to have a very attractive opportunity from a price consideration. I believe the future will have a beautiful coexistence of solar, wind, and re other renewables where they make sense, and they will be the, the main gain in those domains. Right. And then supplemented with, you need some form of baseline power, and I think fusion is the right one because it won't have any of those negative environmental impacts. Okay, so to come back to fusion, we are looking, uh, as with fission, at something which will run 24-7 and provide the baseload power. Yes, okay. it, it, that's it. That's the exact, that's its, that's its intended mission and that's the consequence of what we're doing we're, we're building for base baseline capability great michael you've given us a really interesting insight into the future so i'd like to thank you for talking to the sustainable futures report thank you very much i enjoyed it thank you for for having us and uh you know i'm glad that people um, like you are out there education is the most important mission you know when you bring new ideas into the world for adoption comes mm -hmm. from people wanting this and understanding its benefits. So thank you for having us. It's quite weird. You wait around for ages for a fusion physicist and then two come along at once. I'd just finished this interview with Michael Binderbauer, CEO of TAE Technologies, when I got an invitation to a lecture by Dr. Kate Lancaster of York University on the same topic. She's following a different path. I believe there was a recording, and I'll pass on the link when I get it. And finally, will sustainability remain a corporate priority after COVID-19? According to Adweek, yes for some brands, maybe for others. There's a link on the blog to the article. 
And that's it for this week. The Sustainable Futures Report's reach is increasing all the time, and I'm frequently being approached to carry interviews like the one you've just heard. In fact, I've got three more lined up, and I may have to run extra episodes just so the topic is current. So, as usual, there will be another Sustainable Futures Report next week. You might even get two. Have a look at patreon.com slash SFR, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash SFR, if you're not already a patron. And maybe give me a little something for my trouble. I'm Anthony Day. That was the Sustainable Futures Report. Until next time. (laughs) 